0: Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3? Very important chapter for a lot of reasons. We'll see some of them tonight, but um, without Genesis 3, a lot would go unanswered in the world in the way of why things are the way they are. We don't want to be like one comedian that I remember years ago, whose uh, famous line was, the devil made me do it. But... As Martin Luther said, if there is no devil, as some were contending, who's hassling me all... I'm paraphrasing, that's not what he said, but who's hassling me all the time, right? Well, we're going to read about who's hassling us today. So, in Genesis chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent is Satan, and it's true that we're never told the serpent and Satan directly in Genesis 3. But when you piece other scriptures together, it becomes obvious who we're talking about. In Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 13 to 19, God tells us through the prophet that Satan was in Eden, the garden of God. We know in Revelation 12 and in chapter 20, we see a dragon that is then identified as that serpent of old, the devil and Satan. So it's obvious that the devil took the form of a serpent and uh, did what he was about to do to Eve, to tempt her. Now the word cunning is a Hebrew word that means intelligent, shrewd. You say a snake? Well, obviously the serpent as we know it today was not the same as it once was in the Garden of Eden. What this creature looked like before the fall, how beautiful it was, how it got around, we don't know anything about that. We don't know. it talked. Did all the animals in the garden talk? Some people think they may have. I personally don't. I personally don't think all the animals talk. I think that Eve was in such a state of innocence. Remember we talked about this last week? Before the fall, before they ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were in a state of innocence, kind of like little kids, all right? And it was that Eve was in such a innocent state that when the serpent began to talk with her, she didn't recoil in in fear and shock and and become suspicious, uh, she just started to converse with the serpent. It'd be kind of like a uh, a two-year-old. You know how two-year-olds are. They can communicate, but you know, if you brought a dog up to a two-year-old and the dog started to talk, the two-year-old would probably just talk back, right? Now, Satan... Uh, he was not unaware. He was very cunning, very crafty, super intelligent uh, being. Where did he come from? Well, the Bible says God created a being called Lucifer. Lucifer means shining one, shining one. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, God tells us that at one time, Lucifer was, and I'm quoting scripture, the anointed cherub who covered. A cherub is the highest form of an angel. The fact that Lucifer was the anointed cherub implies he was the top guy in heaven, beside, I mean, right underneath the Lord himself, the Trinity. He was in charge of all the angels of heaven. The cherubs were the elite, but then you had, you know, lesser degrees of angels. It seems that he was the one anointed by God to uh, be over them. In Isaiah chapter 14, God tells us that Lucifer, though, wasn't happy being. Uh, wasn't content to be second in rank to the Almighty. Listen, he wanted to be the Most High God. He wanted to be the Most High God. And so he led a rebellion in heaven in an attempt to overthrow God. Now, this is a super intelligent being that did something pretty stupid. He thought he could overthrow God's throne and sit down on God's seat, his throne. Well, of course, we read in Revelation 12 that it tells us that he was able to convince a third of the angels of heaven to follow him in his revolt. Of course, they failed, and they became fallen angels. And at that time, Lucifer uh, took the title of Satan, which means adversary, and the devil, which means accuser or slanderer. But I want you to understand something. Even after the fall, Lucifer still maintained his beauty as a shining one. That's very important, all right? He still maintained his beauty as a shining one. In fact, he uses that beauty to his advantage as a deceiver. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul said that, um, or verse 14, I should say, Paul tells us that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light to deceive. The word angel there in the Greek is a word that simply means messenger. Now, we, we read about angel, we think of God's angels. But the word simply means a messenger. Paul is saying that Satan can transform himself into a messenger of light to deceive. What does that mean? Well, I take it literally. I take it literally. There have been down through the course of history, beings that have appeared to others. I'll give you one. The angel Moroni, who appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him, supposedly gave him these golden plates, the plates of Nephi, And uh, with these golden tablets, he was able to um, decipher things, all right? And it led to the Book of Mormon. But a, a, a being of light came to Joseph Smith and gave him information, told him that all the churches up until this point of his life had been corrupted. There was no true church. All the churches were teaching lies. And God was now coming to him, sending an angel to him, to give him the truth that he would start a new church that would be pure. Of course, it was all lies, right? We see in the occult, especially in like the New Age movement, uh, people involved in the New Age movement have been visited by uh, beings of light, uh, often called ascended masters, people that have died and have moved out into the astral plane in spirit form, come back once in a while and visit people and give them uh, information, will give them doctrine. We're going to see in a moment that demons have doctrines. Doctrine means teaching. So Satan's whole deal is to appear to be beautiful. We associate light with beauty and truth, don't we? And Satan uses that to his advantage. He takes the form of a being of light. He He is a being of light, but he does so to deceive. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he said, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, So your minds may be corrupted from, listen, the simplicity that is in Christ. When you listen to some of these other belief systems that people have gotten from angels or whatever, they're so esoteric and deep. But, you know, Christianity, the gospel is so simple, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, who came down to die in our place because we were guilty, we were sinners sinners can't die for sinners so the sinless spotless son of god became the lamb of god who gave himself for the sin of the world that we would not have to die in hell forever but might have eternal life a child can understand that and paul says listen don't let any being even an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel than that which i preached to you let them be accursed Because Satan is out there, and he is trying to deceive. And he comes across looking beautiful and positive. But all the while, he's deceiving. I think, in a sense, we're all victims of Milton's depiction of Satan as an ugly, hideous creature, uh, red uh, jumpsuit, uh, horns, pitchfork tail. That's most people's concept of Satan. But he is described in Scripture as a creature that was created by God. Listen perfect in wisdom and beauty, so much so that when we see him for the first time, the devil. When we see Lucifer for the first time, Isaiah tells us, we're all going to go, is this the one that caused all the trouble? We're going to be shocked. Why? Because he's so beautiful. He doesn't fit the mold of somebody who is that evil. He's too beautiful to be that evil. Well, apparently not. He's beautiful, but he is evil. Be careful you don't assume that when things are positive and, uh, you know, that they must be of God. Because all positive things come from God. All negative things come from the devil. First of all, I don't find those words in my Bible. I find truth in my Bible. I find error in my Bible. I don't find positive and negative. That sounds like electricity. That's a force. My God isn't a force. He is a sentient being. He is an almighty being. And he is not, you know, subject to, you know, this idea that you know negative things are always from the devil and positive things are always from God. Positive confession, because that's of God. Look, the devil is very positive, which we're going to see. He told Eve, if you eat the forbidden fruit, what's going to happen to you? You're going to become like God. That's pretty positive. What did God tell Adam and Eve before Satan tempted them? You eat the fruit of that tree, what? You're going to die. Sounds kind of negative. Look, sometimes the truth is kind of negative sounding. And sometimes a lie can be very positive. The issue is, what does God's word say? All right, what does God's word say? All right, that's the issue. So sometime before Genesis chapter 3, Lucifer sinned in heaven and fell. Jesus said in Luke 10, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When did that happen? We don't know. Now, if you're into the gap theory, some people think that happened between Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. We don't know, okay? We don't know. We know sometime before Genesis 3, though, Lucifer led this revolt in heaven and he fell. Now, when Lucifer fell, guys, I'm trying to just kind of, this chapter is so foundational. I just want to kind of sketch out some of these things. So you have a some of this you've already heard me teach many times, but think through it with me, okay? So you understand this, all right? When Lucifer fell, his his authority in heaven was terminated, although he was not kicked out of heaven at that time. In fact, he still has access to heaven. That's where he accuses us to the Father. That's why he's given the name devil, accuser, slanderer, right? And who's our advocate that defends us? Jesus Christ, the righteous, okay? But when Lucifer fell, he was stripped of his authority, but not of his ability to stay in heaven. Now, the devil, and we know from the book of Job, we see how that the angels of God presented themselves before the Lord, and Lucifer came along with them to accuse Job. And we know that Lucifer is going to have access to heaven until the midpoint of the tribulation period when Revelation 12 tells us God will say to Michael, one of the chief princes in heaven, chief angel, he will say to Michael, it's time you and your angels cast Satan out. There's going to be a war in heaven. And Lucifer is going to be cast down to the earth where he will be confined for the rest of the tribulation period. He comes down having great wrath because he knows he's only got a little time left before he's judged. So he still has access to heaven. He continues to maintain authority uh, as the leader of an army of fallen angelic beings. Very powerful army. Listen. That are still bent on overthrowing God. Now here's the thing. Satan knew he couldn't do anything to hurt God directly. So he decided to do the next best thing. Hurt those whom God loved and made in his own image for the purpose of loving, intimate fellowship. You really want to hurt somebody? Strike their kids. Satan knew I can't do anything to hurt God. But I can sure hurt him by hurting the ones he loves. Genesis chapter 3, guys is all about Satan exporting, listen, exporting his rebellion from heaven to the earth, where he set his sights on corrupting mankind to turn them into the same kind of fallen creatures that he himself and his angels were, and in the process tear them away from a loving God, because sin would separate them from God. He knew that, even as it had separated him from God. But guys, that wasn't his only plan. He wanted to take from Adam and Eve through deception, The world God had given to them. You see, Satan wanted to be the world's new owner and man's new master. He wanted this to be his base of operations. This was a planet that God chose to put man on. This was a planet that God loved because it had a treasure in it. Remember the parable of the man who walked through the field and found a treasure? And for the joy thereof went out and sold all that he had so he could purchase the field and gain the treasure? The field was the world. The treasure, well, those were going to be his people, God's people. The ones that would believe in him and receive him as their Lord and Savior eventually. So Satan figured, look, God loves this planet. God has put people on this planet he loves. And if God loves these people and God loves this planet, that's the target. They're in the crosshairs. And so in verse 1 we read again, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you, and the you is plural, down through verse 5. So he's talking to Eve, but he's including Adam. Adam's not there right now. I don't know where Adam was. I'll get the car washed. We don't know where he was. He wasn't there right now at this time. Maybe he's picking berries somewhere. I don't know. Anyways, God is, has God indeed said you, plural, uh, shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 8, you don't have to turn there. Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies, who was a liar from the beginning. And no doubt that's a reference to Genesis 3, when Satan, as the father of lies, offered up the first lie he ever fed to mankind. In this case, it was only two people, Adam and Eve. And the very first lie of the devil, listen to me, was to tell Eve that God didn't tell her the truth, that God didn't tell her the truth. Notice he doesn't come right out and call God a liar. He's too subtle for that. He just, you know, subtly tries to sow doubt in her mind as to what God said. He says, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Verse 1, right? Some of the newer translations put it this way. Did God really say? And guys, here we have the first question in the Bible. Posing the first dilemma in human history. Up until this point, there were no dilemmas in the world before this one. The question is carefully crafted by Satan to start Eve down the path of doubting God's word. That is at the core of everything we're going to learn tonight. How that God gave his word in the garden and Satan came and tried to undermine it. He tried to attack it first subtly, then directly. He tried to get Eve and then Adam to doubt what God had said. We'll see that in a moment because he's very smart. He knows that doubting the word of God will inevitably lead to rejecting the will of God. And when that happens, he can turn people into the same kind of rebel he is, doing whatever seems right in their own eyes instead of obeying what God has declared. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, And for the first time in human history, The most deadly spiritual force was covertly smuggled into the world. What was it? The assumption that what God has said is subject to human judgment, end quote. Very dangerous. And the attack, guys, centered on the one prohibition God had placed on Adam and Eve, the one tree, the one tree out of thousands probably, the one tree God told them they couldn't eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one, of course, the devil began to tempt Eve with. Now, it seems to, his point seems to have been to try to convince Eve and then later on Adam that God was, listen, unnecessarily restrictive and narrow. That's funny on the face of it. Restrictive and narrow? One tree? You've got to give somebody a, one choice if they've got a free will. God didn't say, now half the trees you can't eat from and this half you can. He said, one lousy tree you can't eat from unnecessarily restrictive and narrow? Give me a break, right? But his point seemed to be to convince Eve that God was being unnecessarily restrictive and narrow. I could just hear him telling Eve, you know, God wants to limit your freedom and rob you of the fulfillment you deserve. We hear that so much today, don't we? Now, not only did it undermine the truth of God, listen, it was a frontal assault against the character of God. How can God be all that loving and good if, he withholds from us things that are beneficial. And if he will do that, if he'll withhold from us good things, then how can I really trust him to run my life and lead me in the right path if he's keeping things from me that are good? How can I trust him? Satan tries to get Eve to think he cares more about her welfare than God does. I mean, God, he implies, is trying to keep from her something that's good, while he, the devil, wants her to have you know the full freedom to do whatever she wants and to experience whatever she wants. I mean, isn't that love? Doesn't true love want people to have freedom to really explore and expand themselves? Isn't it a control freak that puts restrictions on people and in the name of love controls them? How can God be so loving when he just wants to control, right? Look, God is not a control freak. He's a loving parent. And every one of us who are parents understand that when the kids were little, you put restrictions on them. Why? Because you love them and didn't want them to hurt themselves. So there were parameters. God is a very loving God, loving us so much that he doesn't want us to do anything that will bring pain into our lives. But Satan turns it around and makes people think God's being restrictive because he just wants to keep us from having fun, having a good life, you know? Now at this point, Eve isn't really ready to take the bait completely. So she tries in a kind of a weak way to defend God. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, well, we may, I just hear her stuttering a little bit. Well, we, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the, of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice she tries to defend, to defend God's word by adding something to it. God says you can't eat it. If the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. So what does she add? Nor shall you touch it. Now, we appreciate when people try to help God out. Okay? It's not necessary. We don't have to come to his defense and try to embellish what he has said, all in the name of trying to help his word to stay true and whatever, all right? God has severely warned us about adding to or subtracting from his word, right? In fact, the book of Revelation ends in chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. God says, look, if anybody takes away from the From the prophecies of this book, I will take away their name from the book of life. If anyone adds anything to what I've said in this book, I'm going to, you know, add to you the plagues written therein. Now, some people say, but that was only the book of Revelation. Well, I'm not sure I would want to not apply that to the rest of God's word, okay? In fact, years ago, they came out with something called the Reader's Digest Version of the Bible. Maybe you remember that. They sought to condense the Bible so that it was easier to read, so they took out a lot of stuff that was just superfluous, they thought genealogies and repetitive things. And, and they just hacked the Bible up, trying to make it real condensed so people could you know, read it quickly. And when they got to the verse that says, don't take anything out of this book, they took that out. because you know, you've, you've already chopped everything up. I mean, you know, They took that out too. And then God took the reader's digest Bible out because I haven't seen it since. But look, there's always been those who have subtracted from God's word the things they didn't like or agree with. I remember Thomas Jefferson. Now, I don't remember Thomas Jefferson. We weren't pals at one time. But I I remember reading. In fact, I got a copy of of a Bible called the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson didn't believe in miracles. Okay, so he took all the miracles out of the New Testament, the Gospels especially, because he just didn't believe in miracles. And he made himself his own version of the Bible called the Jefferson Bible. So people have taken from the Bible for centuries what they didn't like or agree with. The other end of the spectrum, we see legalists who have put long lists of prohibitions in the Bible. I mean, not literally, but they will say holiness, that's in the Bible, and holiness means these 99 things you can't do. So they're really adding into the Bible, aren't they, things that are not there? When the word holiness just simply means separated, separated one. You're separated from the world, you belong to God now. That's all it means. But people want to read into the Bible. And others have introduced works into the pages of Scripture as being necessary along with faith for salvation. So we can see that people for centuries, even from the very beginning, people have, t- have added to what God has said, tried to t- take away from it. And God says, just leave it alone. Just leave it alone, okay? Uh, my word doesn't need to be revised, updated, edited. It's perfect. The word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, okay? We don't need to do anything to it. Just read it and obey it. So why did Eve, and again, she was in a state of innocence. So she wasn't, you know, she was like a kid. But why did Eve feel the need to add something to what God said? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to think what could have been going going through her mind. Um, it could have been at this point, maybe she was starting to buy into a little bit what the devil was saying. And therefore, she started to think about it. Well, yeah, maybe he is a little too restrictive. So as she repeats what God said, she embellishes and says, yeah, we're not even supposed to touch it. Well, God didn't say that. But whenever you want to impugn somebody's character, you always put words in their mouth, don't you? I've had people who, you know, have come to believe that I was a false teacher, uh, the devil incarnate, nice things like that. And, you know, and then you begin to hear things. And they will quote me, and often they'll put words in my mouth, things I never said. When I hear these things back, I think, I hate that guy too. (laughs) I mean, you know. But apparently she seems to have been wavering, because at this point the devil, he acts like he's got her, all right? I mean, the mask comes off, the subtlety thrown out the window, he just attacks God directly. He just attacks God's character directly. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. First, Satan tells her, and I want to pick this apart so you see how he attacked her, how he tempted her. First, Satan tells her, you can't trust God's word. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. His way is in the true path of fulfillment. And then secondly, he tells her, you won't surely die. Listen to what he did. He attacked God's word. He told her, you can't trust God. No use doing what he has said because he doesn't have your best interests of heart. And guess what? Whatever you do, there'll be no penalty. There'll be no judgment. There'll be no day of reckoning. Again, in other words, you can do whatever you think is right, Eve, even if it goes against what God has said, and there won't be any consequences. No judgment. Is that a message we're hearing today? And so, these things appeal, these ideas, no consequences. We would say they're preaching no judgment. That's the big lie today. And why is this so appealing to people? Well, guess what? Here's the general mentality of most people in our country, the world no doubt, but in our country, look, here's what most people are thinking. Because no one knows what will make me happy more than me, and my personal happiness is what life is all about, therefore, nobody's going to make decisions for me nobody's going to tell me how to live not even god i know what's best for my life i know what's going to make me happy my happiness is really all that matters they wouldn't maybe say it that way it's exactly how they feel my happiness is all that matters and so i'm going to choose to do whatever feels right and makes me happy that's the kind of culture we're living in now live that way guys you've got to do one or two things either you have to do away with god himself because guess what? You can't have a God standing behind you looking over your shoulder, a God who has rules and morals, a God who has standards, a God who would never say there's no boundaries. Uh, you can't live outside the lines that I have drawn because those are the rules. So if you don't want God standing over your shoulder, bringing all that guilt on you because he's got these rules and you don't want to live by any rules, you got to do away with God. you got to get rid of God. And that really is what's behind this, this neo-atheism movement. And don't let anybody tell you differently. The reason people are throwing God out the door and saying there is no God is because they want to live any way they want to live without the guilt of believing that they're offending the holy God in some way. They just want to live the way they want to live. They don't want any guilt. So get rid of God. Now, there's a lot of people who believe in God would never want to get rid of God per se because they do want Him to bless their lives at certain times. They do want to turn to this benevolent deity this grandfatherly kind of like a santa claus in the sky concept right just kind gentle doesn't judge anybody or send anyone to hell but he's a good and kind and gentle god and when they turn god into that kind of a being well what they do is they tend to twist the word of god they take all the teeth out of it all the verses that talk about judgment God's wrath, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. They focus only on the attributes that are comforting to them, his mercy and his love and his grace and so on. And what they do is they say, well, look, the Bible is not full of absolute truths; It's more of kind of suggestions. I mean, you know, you can't say that it contains these absolute rules. It's kind of like here's some standards, here are some things to think about, you know, some suggestions for life. And, but in the final analysis, do what is ever in your heart because if your heart is good and you're a loving person, it doesn't really matter. And that's the concept today. So people are going to God's word and saying, well, you know what, these are not absolutes. They are more like suggestions. I guess the ten suggestions, not the Ten Commandments. And, um, and, and, and they have, they've done away with absolute truth, and now it's all relative. Whatever is right for you, that's okay for you. Whatever is right for me, well, that's my truth. And this is the culture that we're living in. Now, we read in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So by this time, Adam comes back now from wherever he was. And uh, Eve ate the fruit, and then uh, gave to Adam, and he did also eat. So Eve, with the serpent's help, became the first person on earth to doubt and deny the validity and the authority of God's word, opting, listen, instead to do what seemed right in her own eyes. And when Eve did that, guys, and this is the thing today, it's, it's continued to the present day, okay? In doing so, she became a judge over God's word, Instead of allowing the word of God to judge, to be a judge, and the final authority over her life and conduct. Today we see many people sitting in judgment of God's word. Again, picking and choosing what they like. Uh, I like this one. I'll keep this verse. This one I don't like. I'll throw that one out. They approach God's word like somebody would approach a salad bar sizzler. Just pick out the stuff you like and toss away the other stuff. But look, it worked. It was perfect. Satan's strategy, in fact, was so effective in the garden against mankind's parents, Adam and Eve, that he has effectively used it against all of their children around the world since that day. In fact, turn to 1 John 2. I'll show you what I mean. John tells us the strategy of the devil for how he tempts everyone around the world. John said in 1 John 2, verse 15, He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. And there John is talking about the world system, that which is controlled by the devil is the God of this world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, as you look at what John says, how Satan works in the world to tempt and deceive, and you compare it with what he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden, look at how it lines up. So, back in Genesis 3, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, what is that? It's The lust of the flesh, right? It was good for food, tasted good, good for the body, lust of the flesh. That it was pleasant to the eyes. What is that? The lust of the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. That's the pride of life. Everything in the world, Satan has designed. He has orchestrated everything to appeal to the body in some way, right? To appeal to pride, the intellect. That's why it's such a big push on education and degrees and everything like that. If you have a degree, somehow you're a better person than somebody who does not have a degree. And the more degrees you have, the better person you are because you're smarter. And then some of these people with these degrees, the things that they believe and say and do, I'm like, God help us, okay? I'm not putting down education. Don't make it a God, though. People have turned education into a God. They've turned the body into a God. They've turned the lust of the eyes into a God, materialism. God said the tenth commandment, not the tenth suggestion, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, which means to lust after whatever belongs to your neighbor. Because that will lead you down a path of sin. Be content with what God has given you, is the idea. So Satan took these three what seem to be simple temptations and has used them effectively against all of Adam's descendants from that time on. In fact, he even used the, the, this three temptations against the Lord Jesus Himself in the wilderness. You remember how when uh, excuse me, Jesus fasted for forty days and forty nights, as a spirit led him out into the wilderness. Then at one point, Satan tempts him, right? And what does he do? He knows he's hungry. He hasn't eaten for forty days, forty nights. He says, uh, "Look at these stones." And, and and the stones back then in that area were kind of like flat, disc-like stones. They looked like bread. He says, why don't you use your mighty power to turn those stones? They already look like bread. Why don't you use your power to turn them into bread? You're hungry, aren't you? Go ahead and do that. And what did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, very high, about 450 feet above the temple floor, the the temple courtyard. Always had many Jews there, uh, walking about and talking and things, and socializing and studying and so on. Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, "Now jump off, because it's written, He'll give His angels charge over you. They're not going to let you hit the. You're the Messiah. They're not going to let you hit the ground and die. Those angels will catch you and gently bring you down right in the midst of the crowd." wow won't that be spectacular you want people to know your messiah look at that's going to really make the 10 o'clock news that's going to be wow the wow factor you can't beat that jesus said take a hike it's pride of life though right first is the lust of the flesh second the pride of life people that think a lot of me and then finally he takes them up to a high mountain shows them all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time says all these belong to me i'll give them to you if you only bow down and worship me what is that but the lust of the eyes so i want you to be cautious and careful to understand what how satan works he he's he's not real creative in the sense that when something works he sticks with it he's only got a few plays in his game book but they work really well so he keeps using them and the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life These are three areas that he will constantly target to get you away from God, to break up your marriage, to get you to do something that is wrong to do. It's all designed to take you away from God. But notice that three times Satan came at Jesus with three different temptations in the wilderness, and three times the Lord countered by saying what? It is written. The word of God is living and powerful. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical, but they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. What are they? The word of God and prayer. That's all we need. Know the word. Know the word really well. So when Satan attacks you and he will do it with condemnation, what do you say? When the devil starts condemning you, you're a lousy Christian. God is going to disown you or he has disowned you. What do you quote? There is therefore now No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Once you belong to me, you're mine forever. I've begun a good work in you, and I'm going to finish it. And I'm going to take it of you with me. That's when I'm going to finish it completely at the rapture. But guys, this is where all spiritual warfare began on the earth, in the garden in Genesis 3. And notice it started, listen, when mankind opened the door, uh, to it through rebellion against the word of God that, that's so important here and when man felt Satan took over you see Adam and Eve didn't realize that when God gave to them the world he gave it to them as a possession he said watch over attend it and so on but when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and obeyed the devil they didn't realize that a transaction was going to take place and they had disobeyed their true king and now they were taken captive by a usurper king And man became the property of the devil, and so did the world. That's why Jesus came down to die for the the world, the sins of the world. In fact, he died to redeem the world out of Satan's control. You can read about that in Revelation 5, the scroll that the Father had in his right hand, that Jesus came and took and began to break the seals of. That was the title deed to the earth. Jesus Christ paid for the earth. He bought the earth... (laughs) through his own blood, to redeem the treasure that was in the earth. Read the parables. But when man fell, Satan took over. He became the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the commander and chief of a very elite, very powerful, angelic army, which is using the earth as a base of operations from which to overthrow God, his people, and his kingdom. Now, as I said earlier, when Satan exported his rebellion to the earth, the rebellion that he had unsuccessfully tried to impose on heaven, remember what it was. What was the rebellion? That you know, What was at the heart of Satan's rebellion? What did he want to be? He wanted to be God, right? That was at the heart of his rebellion. He wanted to be God. The same thing he now tries to get Eve to embrace. Verse 4, once again, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of the tree, of that fruit of that tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan told Eve a lie in the garden. When you study that lie, we have studied it in detail in other places, I'm just going to mention it. It's a lie that contains four parts. Four parts. Okay? Four different false doctrines. And I, as I've said before, you can find these four doctrines in part or in total, in every false religion, cult, occult practice, and humanistic teaching on the face of the earth. These four basic doctrines that make up Satan's lie are these. Ready? Number one, and some of these are more obvious than others. Number one, God is not personal, but an impersonal force that fills the universe and everything and everyone in it. You say, you're going to have to explain that to me. I don't see that here. Let me explain to you what was going on here. And again, this is a little more subtle than some of the other ones that are more obvious. But the first part of Satan's lie, and it may not have been real clear when he introduced it to the human race. It's become a lot clearer as time has gone on that this is what he is trying to get across. But God is not personal. He's not a person. He's an impersonal force that fills the universe and everything and everyone in it. Look, when Satan came to Eve, One of the things he subtly planted into her mind was the concept that the person that she had come to know as God, listen, was not God because of who he was, but was God because of what he knew. He was God because of what he knew. You'll see it in verse 5. You will be like God, what? Knowing. You will be like God, knowing. In other words, this being, that Eve had come to know as God, had learned to tap into a force, a force that made him God, and now he was trying to keep from her, he was trying to keep her from understanding what this God force was, because he didn't want her to find the same. Listen, the same divinity and godhood that he had found. So here you have the first part of a lie: God is not personal, but is an impersonal force that fills the universe and flows through everything and everyone in it. What do we call that? It's called pantheism, pantheism, that all is God. If God is an impersonal force that fills the cosmos, then everything is part of that God force. It flows through everything. It flows through us as people. It flows through this podium. It flows through these walls. It flows through the trees and the rocks outside. Everything is part of this God consciousness. The second element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that there was no ultimate death. When Satan told Eve, you will not surely die, he was saying to her, Eve, there is no ultimate death. And of course, this became the basis for the doctrine of reincarnation, which of of course does away with eternal judgment, does away with a literal place called hell, because really reincarnation is just a recycling program. People just keep getting recycled on the earth until they are enlightened enough where they ascend to Godhood and they can, you know, but... The idea is that you don't die, as the Bible says, it is, it is appointed for a man to die once and then what? Comes the judgment, right? No, reincarnation says, no, you just keep coming back and you get it right. you know. Doesn't that appeal to people? I can just keep going round and round and, you know, all right, so I blow it this time around, I'll come back again and get, try to work a little harder being a good person. The third element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that she could become God. See, God was trying to keep from her this knowledge that he possessed, and that if Eve only knew what the knowledge was, then she could become God. We read, For God knows, Satan said to her, that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. Or in other words, you will ascend to Godhood. Now, this is a huge, huge lie that has been embraced by the people of our world. It's also though a huge lie that's being embraced by some Christians in the church. And I've heard teachings from uh, numerous word of faith teachers who are basically saying we are gods. We are gods. We just need to know that. The thinking is this goes this way, you know, when a dog has children, what does it have? Puppies, little dogs. When a cat has children, what does it have? Kittens, little cats. When God has kids, what does he have? Little gods. So because we're little gods, made in God's image, well, if we could only learn to tap into the force, it's amazing. If we only learn to tap into the force that God used. See, he used faith. Faith is a force, they say. If you only knew how faith works, it works according to certain laws. Like electricity or gravity. And if you just figure out what the laws of faith are, you can use this faith as God did and speak into existence your wealth, your health, anything you want. Amazing. you don't think we're in the last days, better think again. And the fourth element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that Godhood could be achieved through the tree of knowledge. Or in other words, the path that God has is through enlightenment, which she could bring about by doing something which in eve's case was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but today there's all kinds of tools and techniques being presented to people whereby they can use them to become enlightened whether you're talking about transcendental meditation you're talking about visualization there's many things that people use in the occult and uh, in other things the new age movement things that will help you get to get in touch with your own divinity to show you that you're really god which is important if you're going to then use the power of God to help people and do whatever. So listen, and we're just about done. The serpent said to Eve, I'm going to paraphrase. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat the fruit of that tree, your eyes will be open. you will be enlightened is what he is saying, and you will become like God, or in other words, you will ascend to Godhood. Now, this is the lie that Satan planted into the human race in the Garden of Eden a lie that was in its embryonic stage back in Genesis 3, but has been growing and spreading for 6,000 years now and has become a tree that has filled the whole earth with the deadly fruit of false doctrine. In fact, the Bible calls it the lie that the Antichrist is going to use on the human race. When he comes, he is going to preach a message. He's going to have a gospel. Of course, his gospel will be The ultimate lie. Uh, We read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11, uh, Romans 1, verse 25, God calls it the lie. Not a lie. Satan has got a lot of lies he has foisted on the human race over the last 6,000 years. But he has one special lie. It's a lie he introduced into the Garden of Eden, a lie that has grown and spread throughout the entire world. It's the lie. And I believe the Antichrist religion will be rooted in the belief that mankind can become a super race of God beings who will live forever. I mean, this has been the goal of Hinduism, Mormonism, the New Age movement, and many other groups and movements throughout history. Those who believe that we are really God, but people just don't know that. We're really God. And so what people need to do is be enlightened. And if enough people are enlightened at one point, we'll reach a critical mass of consciousness and the entire world, the human race, will be catapulted into a quantum leap, and the evolutionary process will become God's. It's a little far out, isn't it? Well, you should read some of the literature among the New Agers. you will be shocked. Shocked. In fact, they're even teaching that some people won't get with the program. They're very selfish, they say. People that don't acknowledge their God, they're very selfish. There's a lot of pride there. How the devil twists things around. Now, pride is thinking you're not God, and humility is believing you are God. But, but the monotheists won't get with the program. They already know this. So when the earth takes a quantum leap in the evolutionary process, the earth is a, is a living entity, they say, an organism. And people on the earth, that's why this whole earth worship, Gaia and all of that, it goes along with all this. The earth is a living thing. And people on the earth are like cells in a body. And those people who don't believe in this collective consciousness that we're all God, well, they're like cancer cells. These monotheists—they're—they're they're hindering the health of the whole planet. So you know what? We got to take care of that. We're going to have to do away with them. But don't worry, we're doing them a favor. You know, they'll be reincarnated again. Hopefully, this time a little more enlightened. Give it the program. Eventually, they'll be with us. So they're already laying the groundwork for the Antichrist. Slaughter of millions and millions of believers during the tribulation period. All thinking they're serving God and doing these people a favor. So how could anybody do that? How, how would their conscience allow that? Because they, they think they're really helping, going to be helping people out. Listen to me. I believe the very lie that caused the human race to fall in the beginning in the garden, I believe is going to be the ultimate lie, the ultimate deception that Satan is going to use against the human race in the end. Look guys, False doctrine in one form or another is nothing new. It's been around since the beginning of time. That's what we're dealing with in Genesis 3. But in 1 Timothy 4, right on the heels of Paul admonishing us in the church to hold up, to proclaim, and to defend the truth of God, he right after that gives a very chilling warning in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church or those who claim to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Look, that demons have doctrines, that's no surprise. Uh, That's what false religions and cults are all about. However, what Paul is warning us about here in 1 Timothy 4 is that in the last days, the days just prior to Jesus' return, Some in the church will depart from the faith, as Jude says in verse 3 of his epistle, the faith that was once delivered to the saints, the faith that we are supposed to earnestly contend for, to fight for, and so on. Some will depart from that faith. But here's the kicker: They're going to depart from the faith, but not from the church. I mean, if somebody is going to church and a Mormon gets a hold of them and convinces them that Mormonism is the truth. And they leave the church, a good church, to become a Mormon. We grieve over that. We, we try to reason with them. We show them Scripture. We pray for them. But what's far more dangerous is when somebody embraces lies and they stay in the church, Christianize those lies, and pass it off as biblical Christianity. That's the real danger. That's the real danger. And we see that today in the church. We see things like Christian yoga, visualization, which is being called a wonderful new prayer technique, which is just as old as occultism. quickest way to pick up a spirit guide, anybody in the occult will tell you, is through visualization. Contemplative prayer, nothing more than Christianized transcendental meditation. People are linking to who they believe is God. It's not God. It's demons impersonating God, impersonating Jesus. And we've talked about this many times. So that's all I'm going to say. Many in our culture today don't want to become God someday. They already believe they are God. Because they have done away with the true God by saying he doesn't exist or that God is dead. Our God is not dead. He's very much alive. He's a gracious and merciful God who is giving all people a time to repent. But His judgment will come. And so we are living at the end. And I believe the judgment of God is about ready to fall, but if it falls, and God allows us the privilege of remaining on the earth for a while before the rapture we're going to have the most fertile time for evangelism we've ever seen because it's going to take something pretty severe to pry the world from the fingers of those who have been so committed to the world and its principles but you know what if that's what it takes so be it for people to get saved for our loved ones to come to Christ you look forward to it? of course I don't look forward to it but the whole purpose of being a Christian is to bring others to Christ, whatever it takes. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are awed. We are, we are just, Lord, dumbfounded at your awesome power, your great love, your incredible patience, that, Lord, you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so therefore you are silent. You are quiet. Even though your word says you're like a slow burning volcano that will someday erupt. Right now you're giving people time to repent and come to Christ. And Father give us grace to be those who know the truth. Who can share the truth. Who understand the devil and his lies and how he tries to ensnare people with things he calls good but are really evil. Lord, we just thank you that you have given us the truth, opened our eyes, and give us grace to be a light in the darkness. Father, we thank you. We ask all this now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.